Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 51. Do you want the animals at the right place at the right time for the right reason? You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. In this episode, we talk to Christine Martin, the owner of Regen Ranch in East Texas. She shares her journey from homesteading to running a profitable ranch and discusses topics such as holistic management, choosing livestock, and direct-to-consumer marketing techniques. We also explore the concept of planned grazing and how it can improve land management. However, before we get to Christine... 10 seconds about my farm. I had told you we would be having some exciting news. I was hopeful it would happen last week. It has not, and it actually looks like it's going to be a few weeks away. So that's on the back burner. Uh, The sheep are continuing to lamb. In fact, we set a new record. Yesterday, we had 12 used lamb, and they had 23 lambs. That's the most we've had in a single day. So they are progressing very good. Cows have not started calving yet, but looking at them, it's going to be soon. Enough about me. Let's talk to Christine. Christine, we are so excited to have you on the Grazing Grass podcast today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Sure. So um, my name is Christine Martin. I uh, own and operate the Regen Ranch, uh, and I'm in East Texas between Houston and Dallas. Um, I raise beef, sheep, and turkeys that I direct sell to consumers. Uh, And I've been doing this uh, for profit since 2017. Before that, uh, I I was homesteading is what I call my homesteading chapter. And I do this because um, what started me on this journey was I got sick. And when I realized what was causing my symptoms, I realized that the food that I was eating was making me sick. And as soon as I cleaned up my diet, a lot of my symptoms went away. And when this started happening back almost 20 years ago, um, clean food wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And so uh, in Texas, you know, driving half an hour is just around the corner. But I was driving two to three hours to find food that I could eat, uh, given, given my sensitivities. And at that time... I had five acres that I was homest- you know, playing with, basically homesteading. And so I decided to get more serious about raising my own food. And that has uh, morphed into uh, 95 raisable acres and then producing the, the meat that I've just stated. Very nice. Sounds like you had a, a very interesting journey to where you are now. It's been challenging, but it's been very exciting. Uh, I, I am an, a learner. I like to learn. And so when I went to the doctor, the first time I started feeling these symptoms and realizing I had a problem, I went to a conventional doctor and he, um, he basically gave me medication to treat the symptoms. 
And I told him, I, I asked him, I said, will this fix me? And he's like, no, this will just help you feel better. And that just didn't sit well with me. And so uh, in oh, doing yes. research, I, in doing research, you know, I realized that what I, I, I wanted to heal myself. I didn't want to treat symptoms. And so finding the root cause was what led me to realize that the food that I was eating and a little bit of his back, background, I was born and raised in Latin America and, and this was at a time before the big grocery store chains came around. So we bought most of our food from the local farmer's market every week, and we made everything from scratch. And when I first came to the States to go to college, I found out about McDonald's and Kraft macaroni and cheese and, <laughs> yes. and you know, and the Snickers bar and the squirt, you know, the beverage squirt. And so, um, so I, during college, I ate a lot of that. And then, you know, right after college, I continued and then I re then the symptoms started showing up. So, so I kind of figured very quickly that the eating from scratch was going to be better for me. Oh, yes. So, and that's when you started on your homesteading path or period. Yes. That, yeah. That's what started on my homesteading path. So, uh, uh, we, put in a garden, we um, brought in chickens, uh, egg-laying chickens and meat chickens. Uh, we brought in a dairy cow, we milked the cow, we made cheese. Um, at that time, my, the land that I had, uh, my five acres, had really high salinity. And so I was trying to improve the pastures for the dairy cow uh, and realized that the salinity was an issue. And that's what started me on the regenerative path about how to heal this, that salinity. Uh, I was introduced to Betsy Ross, who is now deceased, but she, she formulated compost teas based on your soul uh, tests. And um, it, w it was very effective, but it was very expensive. So I did a few applications, but could not afford to do the rest. And, and then in 2015 and 16, I was introduced to holistic management, actually through an ad on Facebook. Uh, and oh, I yes. took, it was, a, yeah, it was, a, it was a six week, it, I'm sorry, it was a six month course, but we met uh, for one weekend a month uh, and went through all the different uh, modules that, that are part of the framework, the holistic management framework. And even before I had graduated from that class, it was it it changed my mindset so drastically that I knew that I wanted to practice holistic management, and I also knew that I wanted to help others understand how to look at things holistically. And so um, I actually just certified to be a professional educator with Holistic Management International. And so now I'm teaching workshops and doing consulting work, helping people think holistically, you know, and holistically um, advocates regenerative ag practices too. So it, it has been yes. a fun journey. Well, very good. So when you started that in 2015, I think you said, 2016? Yes, sir. So did that open your eyes or I, I hate to say open your eyes, but that really drew you to being more than homesteading? and getting your getting a ranch started that that's a really good question um i learned a lot um and i was sharing uh, just this morning that 
there was so much information that it took me a while to to um, put it all in my head and, and implement all the practices. And so um, I, I, I asked for a lot of support from, from my teachers and, and um, but what really, what really resonated with me with, was with holistic management and specifically the framework is that um, it's applicable to anything. It doesn't, it doesn't, also, it doesn't only apply to land management um, I've used the framework and the decision testing on personal issues on personal decisions. Uh, but because I understood the fundamental frameworks, uh, it gave me the confidence to say, you know what, I, I can do this. You know, I can plan, I can yeah. plan my production. I can plan my grazing. I can plan my profit. And so I felt that I had enough tools and knowledge that I could, I could do this seriously. And so that's when I shifted to from homesteading to for-profit. And when you decided on that for-profit, were you able to go out and buy more acres at that point, or did you happen to lease land? That time frame also coincided with uh, a remarriage, and he happened to have family land. So um, we, I went from five acres to 23 acres, and then three years ago went to a hundred acres. So, um, so thankfully that's all, I, you know, I've been very uh, blessed to be able to have access to land. Oh yes. And when you, when you had access to those 23 acres, how did you get started? What did you do? What was the first thing going through your mind? That's a really good question. So it, it, it coincided with the, my graduation from the, the holistic management course. Um, and so I, knowing that we were going to move on to the 23 acres, it, during that six months of the course, I had used this new land as my, as, as, as my project. And so th with the course, uh, we developed the holistic goal. We developed a land plan. We developed, um, a grazing plan. We developed a marketing plan. Uh, so I felt really comfortable that as soon as I graduated from the class, I could get this going. Um, and one of the biggest pieces of advice that I received, and I also share it with the people that I work with, is when you move on la onto land, if you don't currently have infrastructure or if there is infrastructure in place, don't do anything with any of the infrastructure until you've had the, the, the livestock on the property and, and learned how, how to work it, how to move the animals, what works for you, um, how, you know, what, what are the stressors and what, how you're going to solve for those stressors factors as an example, right? If you don't have water, and and you don't, then you need to solve for the water. But then fencing, you can do temporary fencing with electrical fence, or uh, you can use existing fencing and then do cross fencing with the the, the poly wire. But um, make sure you understand the lay of the land, the topography, how how the water uh, runs off or not. Uh, or, you know, bogs down the land before you put any infrastructure and you manage the, the livestock so that you understand how best to, to plan that infrastructure. Because 
infrastructure usually requires capital and you want to make sure that that capital is, is well put in place rather than having to tear down um, and redo. <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. Right. A little story on that um, redoing. I went to a, when I went to college, my, my bachelor's is in animal science. Of course, I went to Oklahoma State University, go Pokes. And we had a field trip to a rather large dairy in the area. And at the time I'd grown up on a dairy. And then after I got my degree, I came home and dairied with my parents for a number of years. But on this field trip, it was a long driveway into their facilities and it was a big dairy. I don't know if it was a thousand cows. It probably was at least a thousand cows, but they had barns and their dairy barn. We drove across this pond dam and then there was just all this concrete in the pond that they, they said, that's all their mistakes. They had <laughs> tore out all that concrete and it was just piled there. And I was thinking, Man, I could do so much with just that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I just think that's excellent advice there to, on your infrastructure, use what's in place and get started. Go through a growing season, go through a full year and see what's happening there before you jump in and start spending more money. Just yeah. make it work and see see how the land works with you, how your management works with it. Great advice there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's not always fun. So my daughter was with me when um, we, we got the, the 100 acres, and we had to drill a new well because the, the existing well was a 50-foot hand dug well that the dogs wouldn't eat, drink the water. So, um, Oh, no. We we waited, you know, we had the new well uh, drilled and then had that installed. But And I knew I was going to install a, a, a water system, a, a, you know, poly tube uh, compression, uh, quick connect. But until we can get that done, um, my daughter ended up having to move the troughs, you know, all around the property because we were doing the planned grazing. And at one point she moved... 15 100-foot hoses to get water, you know, once we moved the cattle, and she was not oh, a happy yes. camper. <laughs> that gets heavy very fast. It, it would, it would, yes. But, th but that's some of those things you have to go through and figure it out. Yeah, I told so her it builds character. Your... <laughs> it does, you're right. <laughs> Um, I think my kids get tired of me saying that. Builds yeah, character. Yeah, I know. <laughs> now, when you uh, went to the twenty acres and onto the hundred, did you did you immediately get beef cattle or sheep? What were your first livestock you got there? Did the dairy cow get to move over with you? No. So the dairy cow, I ended up selling the dairy cow because. Um, we it it was my kids and I at that time, and we just couldn't consume all the milk. And we and and I was working full time, and we sold a little bit. But at that time, I didn't have the marketing skills I have now, and so she really wasn't being put to good use. And and we had friends that were um, homeschooling, and they had a lot of children. So 
she was oh, rehomed yeah. and they, she, she did much better for them than they than than we were taking. <laughs> Based upon my my history, my upbringing, I have a really soft spot for dairy cattle. So, yeah, no, and I love the dairy cow too. But um, so the dairy cow didn't come with us, but at, uh, because I had gotten the training from holistic management, the first thing I did was run a gross profit analysis to figure out what was my better investment and what would give me the most production and thereby more, the most revenue. Because I knew I was going to, aside from my own consumption, I was going to sell direct to consumer. And, and uh, I decided that the numbers worked better on sheep and, and uh, because sheep, you know, have a shorter gestation and, and it's a shorter time period to get them to uh, processing age and they give you twins and triplets so the, the, the numbers are better on the sheep. Um, additionally, I had never, except for the, da the single dairy cow, I had never really worked with cattle and oh, yeah. I had gone to, I had never gone to, I, I had gone to friends' cattle ranches and I had seen all the infrastructure they had in place. And I, you know, these were, these were people that were not addressing the stress-free free environment. And I saw these anim big animals jumping, these big infrastructure fences. And, and so honestly, they scared me. And, and, oh, and yes. I, and I, and I knew that I could, you know, I was much bigger than the sheep and I could handle the sheep. <laughs> so, so yeah. I started with, I started with the sheep. Um, and thankfully one of my teachers during the uh, holistic management, she, she was a sheep, um, she was a shepherdess. So she was available to, for me to ask all of those, you know, sheep 101 questions. Uh, so she walked me through that. Uh, and and I did well, um, except I because I'm in East Texas. We've got a lot of uh, moisture, and and moisture and small ruminants um, really impact the parasite load. And so I struggled managing the parasite load, and I really didn't want to use chemicals. And so I tried a mixture of the. the chemical dewormers with natural dewormers and trying to balance all of that and also culling for genetics, right? Some, some, some of those sheep that some of the ewes just didn't do well on my land. And so I, I culled them, but, um, trying to think holistically and trying to think naturally, um, it occurred to me that, you know, uh, ch chickens do a lot of pecking and scratching. And they can come in after the fact and, and eat those parasites in the manure. But at that time, I was already selling at the farmer's market. And we already had a chicken uh, vendor. And so I, there was nobody doing, raising turkeys year-round. So I decided to start raising turkeys. And so um, I brought in turkeys. I learned very quickly that a lot of hatcheries only sell turkeys for Thanksgiving. So you can find the turkeys in time for Thanksgiving, but a lot of hatcheries do not sell them year round, which is what was my intention. I did finally find what find one, um, and uh, and brought in the turkeys. And it wasn't until 
um, I moved on to the 100 acres that I brought in cattle. And when I did bring in cattle, I brought in small frame cattle because I wanted to make sure I felt comfortable working them, you know, moving them and all of that. Yes, I I fully understand that. I um, we we just on, on my my dad myself our journey. Um, my dad and mom's been hurt too much, and actually one of the catalysts for us really changing our breeding program was dad almost getting hurt by some cattle that was too nervous. So we mm. we really. Um, did a 180 there and really changed up our our cattle on the main farm and it's really it's it's made a tremendous difference but yeah our facilities to handle our cows now does not have to be as great as they years ago we were like we need taller fences but now we're like yeah they're they're fine we don't have to worry about that and that point was actually hammered home we had a neighbor and they had a couple calves get out. And I'm trying to think why they got out. But anyway, they were across the road from us. And they brought them into our chute and stuff. And we have a scales. And we've never had any problem with anything getting out. We thought it was more than enough. And um, they're, they're, it was a yearling steer. And he got out. And um, Really? <laughs> we're like, okay, we're glad we don't have him. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, and, and Greg Judy will say that's the animal that first goes to the processor, right? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anytime we work cattle and my mom is there, um, a cow acts wrong, she'll be the first one on the trailer. Yep. Mom is yep. not putting up with it. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> I, I think it's a great thing. Uh, it just took, we're a little bit slower learning here in Oklahoma, so it took me a little bit longer <laughs> I don't that. believe that. I don't believe that. <laughs> so with your sheep, what kind of sheep did you go with? And were you, and did the turkeys, well, first let's just go with what kind of sheep did you start with? So um, I because I knew I was going to be uh, producing meat to sell, I wanted uh, a breed that will give, give me the most meat and so I ended up deciding on the dorpers um and I I picked the I picked the white the white-headed dorpers just because I like white and I didn't like the black and white right when I when I talk to people I talk to people about operations and their choices I you know um I always tell them every operation is a direct reflection of the people who own them right so the breed, the colors, the aesthetics, all of that goes into into your decisions. And I decided I liked the white ones better. <laughs> and and I completely agree. I know where you're coming from there. You know, a lot of people say, well, the color doesn't matter. Well, aesthetically it does. I want my cow herd to be all a nice dark red. That's what I like. So um, yeah. I know in the end... It doesn't matter, but for me and the value I get from it before we start talking finances, I want the dark red. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. so, and, and and I think you can understand this. I still have, I want somebody to explain to me why black cattle in Texas are so prominent. 
what I don't understand why anybody would have a black animal in Texas with the heat, you know, when we get to triple digit and however much humidity. Anyway. Yeah, that's a tangent I don't have an answer for. I, I'm shocked whenever I go to the cell barn. It's just, and growing up on a dairy, I have no problems with spotted cows. So, right. you right. know, but you can't have spotted yeah. beef cattle. Or you're really taking right. a hit. So it's it's yeah. just interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. with your dorpers, did the turkeys help you get that parasite load under control? Actually, they did. So a mixture of culling for culling for the the high parasite loads. Right. If I had to if I had to treat them more than five times for parasites, um, they they went they they were culled. And now I'm even stricter. If I have to treat them for twice, then then they're gone. Oh yeah. Um, but the, yes. but the turkeys did really did mitigate um, the the move, um, the the parasite load. the The issue that I had was my my sheep flock was much bigger than my turkey f- flock. I guess oh, a turkey yes. is it a turkey flock? And so um, moving. Moving the turkeys after the sheep was was very time cons. It required a lot of time to move them, um, so uh, so it ended up they lagged a little bit, but it it was still very effective mm-hmm. in managing for the parasites. Very good. When you were moving your sheep, uh, did you use? electric poly wire poly braid or do you use netting or how did you move your sheep and keep them confined i i did use the electrical netting fence and i know everybody has a love-hate relationship with that netting fence (laughs) yes um but but um i call it my ranch fit program Right, it's really good for your triceps and biceps to hold the, those, oh, yes. those and the reels. Um, and and yes, yeah, so I've been using I've been using the netting fence since 2016, and I still have some um, from you know that are that old that are still in pretty decent oh, yes. working condition. So it's not fun. I'm on black line clay, and when it gets really dry here, putting that fence in can get very difficult. Last summer, when we had a dry spell, I was actually using a hand drill to to pre drill the ho- the posts, um, oh, the holes yes. for the posts, and and I I I ended up having to order a whole bunch of posts to replace because those uh, the two prongs just <laughs> got destroyed. Um, oh yes. <laughs> Do you but, yeah. use uh, any livestock guardian dogs or livestock guardian animals with your sheep? Yes, I do. I've been using uh, the Akbash breed uh, oh, ever yes. since 2015, 16. Uh, I, and I picked the Akbash because um, on, my, on the original 23 acres, we had a lot of brush and 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 uh, greenbrier, which is a vine that has thorns that uh, that grows up through the brush, and so I wanted short hair animals, and the akbash um, are shorter hair. I also, because I do ranch tours, because I I do homeschooling tours on the ranch, 
I wanted the dogs to be people friendly and I found the Akbash to be quite people friendly as well as really good pro uh, livestock protectors. I have one Akbash with my sheep and, and I plan on getting more Akbash. I really like him. Yeah, I like them. They, they, uh, they're very people friendly, but they're very protective. So you worked on your plans. You had all these plans ready and you decided to go with sheep and then you added turkeys. How were you marketing them and getting, did you find there was a good market year round for turkeys, sheep in East Texas? Um, yes. Uh, so I knew right off the bat that I was going to do direct to consumer um, because I, I moved, it was about an hour and a half uh, between the, the five acres that I was homesteading to the 23 acres that I'm, I moved to. So I did not have um, enough local friends and, and family that I could use. So um, I decided that the best way to find customers was to be a vendor at a farmer's market. And, and so right off the bat, I started selling at the farmer's market. Um, I was fortunate enough that I had a farmer's market reasonably close to me at a, in a college town that had a lot of um, international people coming in. And honestly, to this day, I cannot keep lamb meat in inventory. Uh, you know, despite growing the, her the flock, um, I can sell the lamb meat. And so I call it seasonal because I just can't keep it in inventory. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that's a good problem to have. It is. It is, is a good your, problem to have. Is your main distribution through the farmer's market still yet? So in, let's see, two years ago, two years ago, yes, two years ago, I decided that I would start shipping. Um, and this was right after COVID. Um, you know, COVID really, really brought a lot of people um, out to the farmer's market because we were deemed uh, uh, necessary. And so when all the grocery stores were having problems keeping the, the shelves filled, we had a lot more customers come to the farmer's market. And so the demand for my product increased. But um, as, a, as a single operator, uh, the time to go to the farmer's market, the time to be at the farmer's market, the time to come back from the farmer's market takes a big chunk of the day out. And so um, I added shipping to help relieve some of that demand. That, that time, re you know, it, it was more time management because I needed to be efficient with my time. So are you shipping very much of the meat now? <laughs> That's a good question. I wish I was shipping more, <laughs> but I'm oh, fine. Yes. I'm fine. So uh, I, I have a lot of customers that once they find me, they, they come back. But... Um, you know, a lot of the, if I find, if I have a new customer that comes online, they've either found me through social media or they found me through a Google search. And if I don't have a product in inventory, they, they will go to the next person on the Google list or the next person on, in, oh, on yes. social media. So managing that right. inventory, that online inventory with what I sell at the farmer's market. Right. And so I can. I can do an easier job with converting 
a sale, like if I have somebody come to the farmer's market and they're looking for a, a rack of lamb, but I'm out of rack of lamb, I can, I can almost always say, well, you know, why don't you try the, the loin chops, right? Um, they're, you know, they're just as good and you can prepare them this way and they're fabulous. I can't do that online. So, um, so, uh, because, because, because demand is so high and managing that inventory, it can be difficult. Um, but I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> it, it's all a journey, but you made an excellent point there with those online customers, if you don't have a relationship with them okay. and you don't, if you, you happen to be out of what they're looking for, they're just going to go somewhere else. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so a lot, a lot of my customers online, they, 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 I actually first meet them in person. And then when they find out they can order and ship, they're like, Oh, that's easier. Yes. You know, and I, e I oh, have yes. an email you know, I have an email program, so I, I email my customers all the time and try and keep that engagement, that relationship going online. But um, it's the new customers that haven't met me uh, that that I, I end up losing. So. Oh, yes. And I, I saw on your website uh, to encourage people to sign up when they visit. Uh, you have a, a few recipes that you give them when they sign up. Yeah, I have recipes. Which, um, I recipes are a very good way to to uh, to help people with their purchase because it's so many times I they're like, well, I've never cooked, you know, whatever it is, and it's like, well, here's yes. a recipe. It, it it you know we use it all the time at home. So um, recipes are a great way to move product. <laughs> and do you? With your ongoing newsletter, are there recipes included in it? Yes, there's uh, recipes in the, and they actually usually link to the recipe in the, on, on the website. Usually I try and time up new recipes with the emails. Um, the emails always include, you know, some snapshot, some video of, of me on the ranch doing something crazy, you know, or some, or the animals doing something crazy or the babies. So I try oh, yes. and I try and share on the email what I also share on social media. And jumping back just a little bit to the turkeys, um, you can see I kind of go on tangents once in a while. But jumping back That's to okay. the turkeys, <laughs> we we talked about the sheep and the marketing of it. Did you find a year-round market for turkeys, or how oh, are yes. you marketing your turkeys? Yeah. So I decided, um, I decided that I would not um, offer whole turkeys year-round. I would only do it for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And the rest of the time, um, I, I offer it by cuts. And actually, my ground turkey oh. and the, tur the turkey breasts are, are my best sellers. Um, and and okay. I've also I've also learned that those cuts that don't move so fast, like the drumsticks and the wings, if I if I make if I offer samples of of pre-made turkey wings or pre-made shredded tr turkey drumsticks, I can move a heck of a lot of those cuts. <laughs> samples oh, samples yes. if you're in a farmer if you can, if somebody can try you know try it and they like it. Uh, oh yes. 
you know, 90% of them will say, okay, get, give me some. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can see that. I mean, you go to Sam's Club or Costco and they've got the samples out there and right. too often we buy what right. they're trying to get us to right. buy. <laughs> right. Right. Especially if they taste good. Right. And and my turkey always tastes yes. good no matter what, how I've destroyed it or not. <laughs> and what breed are you using for your turkeys? So the first year I did turkeys, I tried the her a heritage breed, and then I also tried the bronze uh, turkeys. Oh, um, yes. And but the heritage breed took too long to grow to a, a, a size that was worth um, processing. Um, and so very quickly I learned that I did not want to do the heritage breed. Um, and And then... That first batch of turkeys, I could not get a, a date with the processor, so I processed the bronze turkeys myself, um, and I still have scars on my arms from from those from that day. Oh yes. So I did. Um, given given their wings are lethal, they really are. They they're so they, oh, they're yes. so strong, but because. Uh, you know, we pluck, we we put them through through the scalder. We pluck them and then we, you know, we cut them. But because of the bronze pin feathers, um, I I felt uncomfortable selling a a piece of meat that had all these dark spots on it. So using oh, tweezers, yes. I I I use tweezers to pick all those pin feathers. And after doing uh -huh. it for fifty birds, I said. I am not doing bronze again. <laughs> <laughs> I I can see that. That's a lot of work right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been raising the the standard white uh, turkeys um, that I get from the hatchery as as either one or two day olds, depending on how quickly they can get here. Uh, and I Hell do yes. a batch of I do I do a batch of fifty turkeys every month, except for Thanksgiving, where I raise two hundred turkeys for Thanksgiving. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, I hate to even say this because uh, longtime listeners of the podcast knows that I'm interested in everything and I want to try everything. Um, I've thought about getting a few turkeys this year and raising them just to try it and see. I've never raised turkeys. Um, I don't know. I haven't. I haven't broadened the subject to my wife yet. She's usually the um, the filtering of my ideas, so I only use the good ones. So I have two pieces of advice for you on the turkeys. If you okay. want to raise them, if you want to raise them for Thanksgiving, if you get a, a bronze or a standard white, it'll take about five months to get them to to about twenty pounds. If you happen to get toms oh, okay. on there, they'll get bigger. Um, so I usually plan on between four and five months. The second thing too is turkeys, that first month of the turkey's life, the poults, they need to be in 98 degree temperature. So it's very important that they stay warm. Um, they're, oh, they're, yes. they're, they're very finicky about the temperature that first month. And then after you make it after the first month, they're very, very hardy. Oh, Okay. Well, wonderful advice. I appreciate that. I'm going to look into it. If I don't do it this year, this year I will soon. But um, <laughs> I've been saying that about I'd like to have some pigs too. So 
Now let's jump to your cattle. You introduced cattle when you moved to more acreage, but I think earlier you said you didn't go with, you went with a more small frame breed. Yes, sir. Uh, basically because of my fear, trepidation of, of handling these animals. Um, and, and I knew it was just going to be me on the ranch because by this time uh, I, I was single again. And I knew I was going to do grass finished. And, and so I knew I needed a smaller frame animal to begin with. And like you, I like dark red. I like to sit on my porch and drink coffee and look at the dark red animals That's grazing. So I ended up deciding on uh, the Dexter breed, which is oh, the, yes. the heritage breed from, from the UK that are multi-purpose. You can actually milk them and the milk is actually can be A2A2, which is a, a protein that is, can be easier digested by those people that uh, are typically lactose intolerant. So. Um, so they were small framed, they were, they could be milkers and they were, they were, um, ideal for grass, grass finishing. And, um, and so I, I, I bought a few and then I added more to that. And so I'm, I've been raising Dexters since, um, it's been four years now, five years now, but because my demand for my product is the demand is more than I can supply, and I really don't want to start leasing land because I don't want the hassle of having to load animals from one place to the other. Uh, I decided that I needed to shift from a cow-calf operation to a stalker to grass finish operation. And so for the last year and a half, I have been looking for uh, somebody that um, could provide animals that follows the same protocol as I do so that I, you know, I knew, I knew what was, how they were being treated. I knew how they were being fed, vaccinated, all of that. Oh, uh, yes. But finding somebody that had the volume to give me Dexter's was difficult. In the meantime, because of the demand, I realized that I needed a higher yielding animal that gave me more beef and so I, I am transitioning to, uh, to Red Angus because oh, okay. I, get, I, yes. I get more, you know, more meat yield per animal. So, so um, I, st I have a herd of Devons and Angus um, that, I'm, that I'm grazing. So you mentioned Devon there. Do you have Devons as well? No, I'm sorry. If I said Devon, I misspoke. Dexter's. Well, I, I thought you might have, but then I thought, wait, if you said Devons, I've got questions along that line. <laughs> now, Yeah, you, no, Dexters. Uh, Dexters are really interesting to me. I think I've, I'm going with South Poles for the most part. I've got a little bit of other breeding in there. Um, but the Dexters I find very interesting. I watch a YouTube channel, uh, Just a Few Acres. Um, Pete on yeah. it has Dexter cows, among other things. In fact, I've emailed him a couple of times to see if I can get him on the podcast. And I haven't succeeded there yet, you go. but I haven't gave up either. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I looked, I looked into the South Pole because I like the South Pole. I like how they handle the heat. The, the economics of South Pole, you know, to buy, to buy a weanling or a yearling to yeah. grass finish just isn't there. 
as much as you know, as much no. as I like the breed. Yeah. The, 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 you know, if I was doing cow calf and and was investing in the cow, that would be one thing. But as a stalker operation to finish, it just doesn't make economic sense. Yes, right now, if you if you stick a south pole on what you're selling, um, it increases their value and quickly makes it so that it's a little bit tougher to break even on finishing. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and my customers are willing to. My customers know the value they're getting, um, and they're willing to pay. But I but I I, they would probably start questioning the price I would have to charge if I oh, use South Pole. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes, yes. <laughs> Christine, before we transition into our overgrazing section, uh, where do you see your farm going in the future? Do you have some plans to diversify? You mentioned a while ago you're not too interested in growing because you're not interested in using lease land. But what's your plans for the next few years? So I have been able to increase my carrying capacity uh, by threefold. Um, so I I am I am improving my grass diversity and and my production. Um, but I don't know how much more I'll be able to. So I, I know I'll be able to increase my production, especially with the shift to from cow-calf to stalker. Uh, and then, then I'm, I'll be okay because um, the, my, my weak link, my biggest weak link is I cannot find dependable, reliable, responsible help on the ranch. And, and, yes. and my, 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 Speaking engagement, consulting, workshop um, time is increasing. And so I have to, you know, I'm going to have to be off away from the ranch and I need help. Uh, and, and finding that help has been a real struggle. Uh, so so I, 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 the, the ranch will grow to what it needs to. Um, and then... My, the growth will happen more in, in teaching, educating, presenting, um, that side of the, that side of, the, it'll be that enterprise that will grow more than the, the production yes. side. Which, yeah, you're, you're running up to that 24 uh, seven issue we all mm -hmm. run into. We, we've mm -hmm. only got a certain amount of time to work with. Um, so I'm sure that'll go good for you. But I did think of one more question before we transition into the overgrazing. And I, I think I know the answer, but I just want to ask you, your holistic class that you took that introduced you to that, is that something that you found really beneficial that you think everyone should be doing? Or does it just apply to a few people? Or what's your thoughts on it? Um. It was an absolute game changer for me. Um, it it gave me the the knowledge base. It gave me the tools um, to th look at things holistically. So many times we, uh, you know, and I find my I catch myself too that, you know, we look at things and we're treating symptoms rather than treating the root cause. Um, you know, why why do I have a bare patch on the grass? Right? Why why? Why am I not getting the diversity of, of, of grass species, right? And we're like, oh, let's, let's seed it. Let's improve it that way, right? Um, instead of saying, okay, well, why do I have a bare patch? What, what, is it a management issue? Is it a soil issue? 
Is it, you know, something? And, and, um, and now I can say this now because, because I've been there, but when I started, I had no idea. I, I know I didn't understand how grass grew and I didn't understand this, you know, the difference between severe grazing and overgrazing. I didn't understand what overgrazing was. Um, I, you know, I didn't understand how the four basic ecosystem functions work and how they all have to be working together in order to create this environment where the natural seed bed starts germinating, right? Where you've got water infiltration, where you've got the dung beetles and the nematodes and the earthworms and all of those working all together to create this healthy, vibrant, luscious ecosystem. Um, so yeah, so I think everybody, anybody, let's put it this way, anybody who's doing regenerative agriculture needs to also take holistic management. Um, it will reinforce the regenerative agricultural principles, but it will give you a better understanding. And it's a framework that will, that you can individualize because, you know, you're unique, I'm unique, everybody has their preferences. They're all at different stages of their learning curve. You know, some people care about red animals. Uh, other people, they're like, give me anything, you know. So it works for any, whether you're a small operation, whether you're a homesteader, whether you have thousands of acres, that framework applies. Um, and it also applies to crop planting. You don't have to be a grass farmer. You could be raising vegetables. You could be, uh, you know, you could have a fruit orchard. It, it applies to anything. It just gives you a basic understanding about how nature works and how to, and principally how to manage the, your environment, which we all care about it because those of us who are landowners, but also how to make decisions that honor your individual values and your desired outcomes financially, socially, and environmentally. So, you know, we've got to manage that triple bottom line. We've got to be making money We've got to be happy, and we've got to have a healthy, uh, functioning land. Well, Christine, let's transition to the overgrazing topic. And this week for the overgrazing topic, we're going to talk a little bit about, I'll let you tell everyone. We're going to talk about planned grazing. And so um, um, the holistic management grazing planning Basically, the pre underlying premise there is you want the animals at the right place at the right time for the right reason. And so it's, it's, it's an improved version of rotational grazing, right? Uh, when we think of rotational grazing, we think of, you know, our acreage and we go from, from one to two to three to four to five, right? And so it's a consecutive movement. On planned grazing, you're going to go, you're going to place your animals where your best grass is. And, and as with any property, you know, you have in the springtime, you know, where you've got your best grasses. And, and so it might be on the opposite side of where the animals, you know, had been, um, wintering, you know, eat, consuming the stockpiled forage. And so, um, understanding how, where to put the animals, and as grass farmers, our primary concern is allowing for enough recovery and planned grazing allows you to plan for that recovery you need. And we all know that recovery time will change, right? 
uh, early spring, early summer, you, you have shorter recovery times. As you get into the heat of the summer and then into early fall, recovery times need to get longer. And so managing for these recovery times is really important and planning those Planning for those recovery times is very, very important. And when you talk about plan grazing, I think earlier you mentioned your grazing plan. So you're putting this on paper and coming up with your plan for the year as a guideline for what you're doing? It, it's, it's my plan. Now, obviously, you know, as soon as you make the plan, it, it gets, you know, it, it's it, going to have to be replanned. Exactly. But, true. But... But um, but but it it is a guide, and then you have to adjust and adapt accordingly. Uh, and and we advocate you you create two plans for the year: one during the growing season, and then one for the non-growing season, or what we call the the, the oh, closed okay. season, the the dormant season. And so, the during the growing season, you want to plan for recovery time, but you also want to plan for that stockpile that you're going to graze over the over the, the the close season or the dormant season um i you know and that because you're planning for recovery you will increase your plant diversity you will cre- increase your grass production um and actually i have hay bales that i'm gonna sell that i didn't use this winter because i actually had more grass available this winter than I did in previous years. And that is so a wonderful problem So planning for recovery works. <laughs> it yes. is. It's a great problem to have. It's a great... And, and, and part of it is because I, I did not account for the fact that I was going to have more forage available. And, oh, yeah. and interestingly, despite not, despite not seeding, I had a lot more cool season grasses come up this winter than I have before. Um, I had... I have vetch and clover that I in pastures oh, that I I haven't seen before. Oh, excellent! And excellent. that's because I've I've allowed you know that recover that recovery is has allowed that environment to change, so that I've got water cycles that are functioning, the mineral cycles are functioning, the the succession you know below ground and above ground is is able to move. Um, so yeah, so I was very pleased. Oh yes. <laughs> Yeah, especially at this time in <laughs> our area. I'm a little bit north of you, but I suspect it applied somewhat to you. But we were drier, and hay's been really high this winter if, if you had to go out and buy it. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. Luck- yeah. Luckily, we did yeah. not, and I say luckily, we. I try really hard to manage my grass. I'm not as good as I need to be, but I'm making progress. Good, yeah. Well, progress is always good. <laughs> It is. And I like to tell people progress is progress, no matter how small. So we'll, we'll get there. Yes, it just takes exactly. a little bit. Exactly. Christine, it's time for our famous four questions. Same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our very first question, what is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Uh, my favorite one is Grass Fed Cattle. By um, by Julius, uh, I don't. I'm gonna mispronounce his name. Ruchel, R U E C H E L. If you if you see my, it's been like highlighted and earmarked, and 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 I've got sticky pat and sticky notes. <laughs> it's been my Bible. It's 
Um, and I really appreciate it because it does have a very holistic approach to it. Um, and it's great for uh, new grazers. It's also a great tool for experienced grazers. It gives you a little bit more in-depth information. Uh, so yeah, so this is the one I, I, I tell everybody to get. That book, when you, you brought it up, I think out of the last, I want to say five or six podcasts I've done, uh, that book's been brought up three times. So that's... um. Is that right? It, yeah. It's getting yeah. out there. Yeah. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, Levi's episode came out and he talked about grass fed. <laughs> yeah. No, I've had, I've had this book for, oh, I don't know, five years now. And um, it's always been my go-to. Oh, very good. Our second question, what tool could you not live without on your ranch or farm? My Kawasaki mule. My Kawasaki mule carries everything I need. It, it's, it's very efficient. Um, you know, I use it. So I have everything on the ranches on skids. And so the sheep shelter, the, the, the cattle shade, um, you know, the, the, the mineral feeders that are on skids, all gets hauled by the mule. The mule hauls all my reels. Um, you know, all uh, hammers and drills and, 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 and the, the, you know, water stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been abused, poor thing. Oh, but it's, I get in trouble with ours here. Uh, my dad will go and use it and he's like, um, do you have to have everything on it? Well, I never know when I might need something. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. Our third question is, what would you tell someone just getting started? Uh, if you can find a holistic management workshop, definitely attend it. Um, the holistic Management International has a lot of online workshops that you can do, um, depending on where you are uh, in the States. or in, and, and I know we have international educators that will work with you, but here in the U.S., there's a there's educators in all states. There's several here in, in Texas, and, and I hold workshops at the ranch, too. Um, I actually just had a two-day workshop last week going over the foundations of holistic management. The next one will be on, actually, the grazing concepts in April, so that ties into this podcast. Um, oh, yeah. But, yes, understand, yeah, being able to look at being able to look at things holistically so that we can manage our quality of life, the finances, and, and the land that we're stewarding is, is critical to the success of any operation. And last, where can others find out more about you? Um, I am on social media under um, the tag of The Regen Ranch. Um, I also, uh, my coaching consulting page is the Regen Ranch Consulting. Uh, I, my website is www.theregenranch.com. Um, and uh, both have my personal contact information. I answer emails and text. Phone calls, not so much because spam likes me. So um, <laughs> yes. leave a message and I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christine, we've really enjoyed you coming on and sharing about what you're doing in your journey. I think it's an episode that's going to give a lot of value to our listeners. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to be on here. It's, it's an honor.
I've enjoyed today's conversation and hope you've enjoyed it as well. If you would like to continue on the conversation, visit the Grazing Grass community at community.grazinggrass.com or go to the grazinggrass.com and click on the community link. You can find the Grazing Grass podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube, we encourage you to go over and subscribe. We will be releasing episodes over there. We also have a lot of episodes we haven't released that we're going to get over there as well. If you find something valuable, please share it. We appreciate you sharing about our podcast and getting the word out. Are you a grass farmer? Would you be interested in sharing about your journey? If so, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. There's a short form you fill out, and we'll be in touch. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.